Having a cohesive and consistent experience is actually a really important thing in design, even if it's not always something that you can quantitatively measure. Right. So sort of going through the process of recognizing when your design has gone through a lot of experiments and it's become a different version of itself mm -hmm. and taking those learnings and then compiling them back together in a single cohesive design right. is sort of the best way to approach that. But unfortunately, in the iterative mindset, a lot of the time we forget to do that last step. We just keep running iterations, we keep running experiments, right. and it drifts further and further and further apart until we realize, oh crap, mm. we've got a crappy experience now. Right. Like It converts really good in pockets with these experiments that we've run, but the overarching experience is very disjointed. Hey, and welcome to the UX and Growth Podcast. I'm Jeff, I'm a UX engineer at HubSpot. And I'm Matt, I'm a growth engineer at HubSpot. And I'm Austin, I'm a UX designer at HubSpot. So today we're gonna to talk about two closely related but relatively undiscussed topics that are really, really important to anybody that's running an iterative, experiment-driven, A-B testing-based sort of process. These things are direct side effects of experimentation, but they don't really get mentioned in the A-B testing handbook when you pick that thing up. And the topics that we're discussing are a couple things called tech debt and design debt. And this is basically the debt that you acquire whenever you run an experiment and the ways that this debt builds upon itself over time. So this can happen in the case of tech debt within the code base. So uh, every time that you run an experiment or cut a corner in the code base, you're sacrificing a little bit of the quality of the code that you've created. And every time that you run an experiment in a design, you're sacrificing a little bit of the cohesion and consistency and quality of that original design from the way that it was intended to be. Do, right. we, do we have a quick example to start off with? So from a design standpoint, uh, if we think of like the, the design as soon as you put it out there, it's straight from like the designer and you launch it, every single element in that design was created within the context of the other elements. So they're all in a way consciously aware of each other. And this is something that I've kind of come to refer to as reciprocal awareness. Mm -hmm. So you have a CTA that's aware of the video that's on the page, that's aware of the copy that's on the page. And all of these things were created cohesively with each other. But say that you swap out that CTA for something else that sort of breaks the cohesion of the page in a certain res respect. And now you have a video and copy that weren't originally created with that new element in mind. They were thinking that there was gonna be a CTA there, but there's not anymore. And also, this new element may not necessarily be aware of the other elements that's on the page. And this isn't saying that the specific elements in the design have a conscious awareness of each other, but rather the context that they were designed within changes over time. And as you add more of these experiments and more of these foreign elements to the page, 
that context shifts more and more and more. And you start to have little pockets of contexts that were created by multiple different experiments that are separate from the original design. So it's almost like taking a perfect sheet of candy, like right out of the oven, and uh, hitting it once and breaking it in one section. Now you don't have as much of a perfect sheet. You've got a little bit of a crack there. And then you hit it again with another experiment and it breaks another section there. And you do that multiple times and then all of a sudden it's pretty disjointed, right? right? Uh, and <laughs> That's just a funny analogy because in the case of breaking candy, like it's not really the same as it. Like if you came up to your design, you're like, I'm going to hit that with a hammer five times. Like you probably <laughs> wouldn't do that, right? Yeah. Like there's this idea, especially with debt in general, that you don't really realize that it's happening. Yeah. You know, it's happening around you and while you're trying to accomplish certain things. And this is how design debt and technical debt are almost the same thing in a way. You're trying to accomplish something and you, in order to do that, you make some progress in one way, but you break something else in the process. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that uh, actually before with we had uh, different tiered uh, plans for like what user status you could be. You could be like a pro user, you could be a power user, you could be like, uh, and, and so on and so on. And um, I remember we ran some experiments where we played around with what we called that and we played around with how we primed the user about like what they're gonna be upgrading to. And after those experiments finished, we put the winner in, in production. And as it turned out, the winner like called those plans something completely different and set like a completely different expectation about what it actually was that they were upgrading for. In which case, like the experience of like seeing, oh, this is a power user, this is what you get from it, and then seeing uh, in another place the the winning variation where it's describing it as something entirely different. It's a disjointed experience at that yeah. point. They so need to be kind of consolidated. At the end of your experiment, depending on where you go, it describes it as a different thing. Is yes. What you're saying. Yeah. So the debt there is nothing nothing was fully upgraded across the board with mm -hmm. that it's just like only in little pockets yeah, yeah yeah so jeff you mentioned like the issue of not being consciously aware of the fact that you're creating debt and that's that's probably the biggest problem that we face with design debt especially is that a lot of the time the more design debt that you take on at least for a while the better your design is still going to be performing because you're running these experiments and you're figuring out what works well, what converts better, what retains more and everything like that. And this sort of relates back to this common gripe that I hear from designers where they're like, I love this iterative and experiment driven process, but there's just something about it where after I've run a bunch of iterations or experiments, I feel like the design isn't really itself anymore. It's disjointed and it seems less cohesive and it's kind of yeah. in a little bit of a crappier state despite the fact that it's performing so, better. Austin, you talk a lot about this where uh, all this makes me think of is a great response is like, well, design's not art. Like this mm -hmm. is like a process, you know, you have to design and you have to learn. And it's weird because in a way, the, what the designer's saying isn't necessarily wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Because as you're building up this debt, this idea of like everything being together and having one like consistent togetherness in the the whole design like that feels kind of artsy but that's not that's not wrong like if you think about uh, the interactions that you're having with something like it's okay to have something be completely consistent across the board and yeah in reality I think it would be preferred but mm -hmm. you know what roles are these experiments playing and what are the pros and cons mm -hmm. and uh, I think we're about to get into that it kind yeah. of begs the question of like what is that 
abstract value of having a very cohesive package. And that's the, the challenge there is that it's a very difficult thing to measure. Mm -hmm. It is, but ultimately, it's really something that I think you have to be aware of as you adopt an experiment-driven process. Right. And you're right, it could kind of feel like it edges on art a little bit, but ultimately, just like having a cohesive and consistent experience is actually a really important thing in design, even if it's not always something that you can quantitatively measure. Right. So sort of going through the process of recognizing when your design has gone through a lot of experiments and it's become a different version of itself, mm -hmm. and taking those learnings and then compiling them back together in a single cohesive together design right. is sort of the best way to approach that. But unfortunately, in the iterative mindset, a lot of the time we forget to do that last step. We just keep running iterations, we keep running experiments, right. and it drifts further and further and further apart until we realize, oh crap, mm. we've got a crappy experience now. Right. Like It converts really good in pockets with these experiments that we've run, but the, the overarching experience is very disjointed. Right, you've really just optimized the individual modules on the page. Yeah. You haven't answered the question as to whether or not those modules gel well together. Yeah, yeah I'd like to also uh, take this opportunity to point out one big difference between technical and design debt um, to kind of set the stage for the rest of how we're describing this stuff. Um, with design debt, um, the the audience that these designs are being given to, the, the where people do work, it's your customers in your design. Your customers see the design, this is the UI, this is um, anything that they can touch. And as the design debt builds up, it affects your customers. As technical debt builds up, yes, it does affect your customers, but mostly it affects the employees. It's like an internal thing. So, you know, you uh, inside your business have to do your work with technical debt and deal with technical debt. And there is technical debt with design as well. You know, the tools in which you use to make these designs. But the design debt builds up and affects your customers the most. So, you know, where are these changes? Uh, where where is the impact uh, most felt by mm -hmm. fixing your technical debt? You feel it inside the company. Yeah. But fixing your your design debt, that you feel it. I guess the customers outside the company feel it, yeah. and then you get the the kickback in each direction. Yeah, you can absolutely. Customers can still feel technical debt if like in 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 the most common case for technical debt. Uh, it's really it's going to slow you down in what you can build. Right. But there's certainly examples where you have so much technical debt where you can't build what you wanted to build or build it a certain way, right. and the customer will, as an effect, uh, will have a poor oh, sorry. Yeah, so yeah. example, uh, like database technical debt or like some sort of systems technical debt where things are breaking, but you've got so much debt that you can't fix these things fast enough, and so the customer has a really poor experience mm -hmm. because yep. of that. Yeah. So when we use the term debt, there's actually a specific reason for that. Right. And that's because whenever you run an experiment, whether it be changing something in the code base or changing something in the design, whenever you're making these quick iterations or modifications, uh, in order to quickly ship something, you're ultimately going to sacrifice a little bit of the quality and a little bit of the cohesiveness, which is effectively taking on debt. So in order to launch this new design experiment quickly, I'm going to sacrifice a little bit of the quality and the cohesiveness that I would have had if I would have just redesigned all of the page in a new context and accept a little bit of debt. And then over time, this accrues interest. So as you continue to let that uh, experimental element stay on the page outside of the page's context and you add additional elements, that interest compounds on itself and it deteriorates the experience 
over time. So this is something that I think we can we can all really relate to. Is like in an experimental process, you're you're wanting to throw things at the wall and learn things really quickly, or you you know you're wanting to to gain that direction that you should be focusing on as quickly as possible. So you launch a lot of experiments really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. And you're taking on a little bit of debt every single time that you do that. And of course, the best way to approach this is to say, okay, we've taken on a certain amount of debt now. Now let's bring this stuff back together in a sort of refactoring process. Yes. And I really like that concept because it goes back to what we talked about in a prior episode about the purpose of experiments being learnings, mm -hmm. right? And so if we think about the purpose of experiments as being the learnings that we derive from them. Maybe we run an experiment where we have a certain module on a page where we discover that, hey, people convert really well when they see faces, when we add like a human element in relation to the copy that's there. Well, if you just leave it so that that one module has people and then every other module has like stars and stripes and fireworks or whatever, then that's not a very cohesive page. But if you just say, if you derive the learning that people connect really well, like faces connect really well with our copy, with our demographic, then you should be applying that to the rest of the page yeah. where, where it's appropriate. Yeah, yeah. So this is a, a kind of an interesting concept that Jeff brought up when we were talking about this earlier. <laughs> Stars and stripes and fireworks, Matt? I don't know. I just got maybe, stuck on that. Maybe, maybe, like, <laughs> maybe it's a fireworks store. I don't know. Yeah. It's the Fourth of July symposium. Sure. <laughs> but basically, basically the, the concept is that when you're iterating, you're trying to learn, right? Yeah. And when you bring this design back together, you're taking those things that you learned or what you know, and then you're designing based off of that. So it's two separate parts of the process. So if you treat your iterations as being final designs or things that you already know, when you really should just be using them to learn, ultimately you're going to get a design in the end that's pretty broken, pretty disjointed, and has taken on a lot of debt. And stars and stripes in people's faces yeah. on the page. <laughs> I had to check myself. Imposium uh, is not a word. I was looking for emporium there. Oh, okay. <laughs> Alex? I'm glad that you checked yourself what on that. What is imposium? So how do you, uh, now that we know what design debt is, which is basically this whole, this whole thing where when you're running experiments, you're, you're trying to learn quickly and you're taking shortcuts and you're breaking parts of your design and changing them and you're effectively taking on debt you're eroding your experience over time. Now that we know what that is, how can we identify it? Like, What are some examples of tech debt or design debt that we've dealt with in real life? Yeah. So one that I've seen uh, is, I think that this is probably something that will apply uh, elsewhere, is if you have a horizontal nav bar and you have a limited amount of space and you need to add a new nav item, but you don't have enough space for it. Well, that design of having that horizontal nav bar with a set width is design debt because now you can't just simply add a new item to the navigation like you would like to. It should be a very quick, easy fix, and it's not. Now you have to refactor and restructure the ordering of your nav items, and you have to like create a dropdown and all this stuff, and it turns into a lot more work. Yep. I, so on the technical debt side, a pretty easy example is uh, copying and pasting things across multiple projects. For example, uh, links. So navigation would be a great one. If you have a lot of different kinds of projects, especially you know a place that does like microservices or um, you have repositories for all sorts of uh, different things that all share commonalities, um, imagine every single one of those having to link to your settings page. 
Now, if that settings location changes, you now have to dig into every single one of those projects with a search or something and make sure that they all link there. And then for anyone you missed, now these people either hit a 404 or um, you know they go to the old version of the page that doesn't have the new stuff that you need. Um, and that that's like a classic example of tech debt is it, something that should have taken you uh, two minutes to find and change a single line of, you now have to change 45, 50 individual mm -hmm. lines of code that all say the exact same thing. Yeah. So a funny little story about that that I've run into. We rebranded a project that I worked on that used to be called Signals back in the day. Mm -hmm. And it changed its name to Sidekick. And then since changed its name to HubSpot Sales. So we should have learned our lesson the first time we didn't. Um, but when we changed from Signals to Sidekick, we had the word Signals sprinkled everywhere in our code base, everywhere. Uh, project names, database keys, variable names. Uh, the actual copy and the images and trying to find and replace literally tens of thousands of locations for that word signals and transform it into psychic yeah. is a nightmare. That was a very time consuming thing. Uh, finding variables kicking around that still say signals, even though the values in them say whatever the new version is, is confusing too. Yes, and that's very confusing. So that, that was huge technical debt. Right. And so uh, in hindsight, like, what we learned there is like whatever the brand name is, brands change, right? Right, <laughs> and so have it all like enumerate to like one single value, one one source of truth that you can just update that single source of truth, and then it cascades through the code. Yes, yeah. mm -hmm. brand underscore name. Yes, yep. Then you never have to change it. Yep. So as a little bit of an example of design debt uh, that I've experienced, we recently ran an experiment on a conversion page for our CRM, and we had two form variations, the first of which adheres to all of our design patterns that we have now, so everything is sort of compliant with the style guide, and the second of which broke all of those. Uh, it was a centered form with typography that was different, uh, rounded corners, which is something that we don't use, um, drop shadows and, and things like that. And when we were introducing the experiment, uh, we got a little bit of pushback and people said, don't even run that experiment because, you know, even if that wins, we're not going to use that design, right? But the thing is that we had run similar experiments in the past with this pre-designed sort of non-compliant type of form and it performed better. So we were like, oh, we're going to run the experiment and see what our learnings are. We ran it and of course the centered and ugly form won. Yeah. Now, if we would have run this experiment and just left the form the way that it was originally designed with the drop shadows and the terrible typography and the rounded corners. We would have taken on a lot of design debt because we just broke all of the context that was previously established within our design in terms of consistency, styles, the way that a page flows. However, in order to not take on that additional debt, we were able to run additional experiments and see what specifically about this form works, and then what can we strip away and make more compliant with our styles to help this fit into the style of the page, the narrative of the page, and everything like that. Yeah. So I think that making sure that if you're running an experiment where you're trying to get a quick learning and you're breaking conventions that you've set within the design. If you're doing that, it's okay in certain respects, but you have to follow up on it and make sure that you're applying those learnings and those style changes or whatever they may be across the site. And for us, a big question was, do we apply the established style guide 
guidelines that, that are basically universal across the site, do we apply those to the form and then see what happens there? Or do we take the style learnings that we had from the form right. and apply those back across mm -hmm. the site? Yeah, I have a question for you there. Mm -hmm. uh, so tell me what you think of this. Now, let's say that uh, you want to be checking whether or not the conventions that you even have are the right conventions to have, mm -hmm. right? Uh, in that case, like, doesn't it make sense to be constantly breaking conventions and experiments to kind of discover if these new conventions that you're introducing are actually the way to yes. go? Like, maybe that data is telling you that, yeah, like, this is a little ugly here, but maybe there's something too, like, some something about, like, the roundedness of it and yeah. the general style of it that you should be applying elsewhere rather than trying to make that conform to the rest of the site. There are for sure cases of that. Mm -hmm. I think that... The most important thing whenever you rationalize while you're breaking a convention is that you have a very, very specific reason tied to it, whether it be you're trying to make some type of quantitative change or there's something you know, cognitively that you think is, is it's going to help impact in the design. Otherwise, you could kind of toe the line of it being a little bit of a self-serving design project where it's like, oh, I want to try this thing that I saw in Dribbble or some bullshit like that. <laughs> Uh, and, and the way that I usually articulate this is if I were tasked with designing the next Toyota Prius and I said, okay, we need to break conventions in this design, clearly that's something that's valued in design. And I said that what I'm going to do is design the next Toyota Prius with no doors then I would be breaking convention, but I would also be rendering my design completely useless because people can't get into the car, they mm. can't use it. Yep. At the same time, if I were designing a button on a site uh, that has like this sort of usual bootstrap treatment where it's like very flat and it's just a one pixel like ghost button. And I said, how about we apply a drop shadow to it? You could say that's unconventional for our design and it's also purely aesthetic. And my hypothesis were that people would recognize the button easier, that maybe an elderly audience would, would take that sort of 3D aspect of the button and, and see, oh, this is something that moves and, and it's more skeuomorphic or, or whatever, then I have a clear goal and hypothesis ap applied to the fact that I'm breaking that convention with the button. But there's no clear hypothesis and goal applied to the whole thing where I'm taking the doors off of the Prius. Yeah, I'm just breaking convention for the sake of breaking convention. So in that case, there are some conventions that are kind of crossing the line if you break them. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, every every car needs to have doors. Every car needs to have wheels. Don't try to design one that doesn't. Those are like core conventions and the same thing happens with websites. Every website has a logo in the top left corner and navigation uh, right aligned, usually, right? Uh, putting the logo in the bottom right hand corner and the navigation in some type of weird slide out thing on desktop is is ignorantly breaking a convention. Yeah, right? it makes it, although usable, it makes it harder for people to learn. Like it's, it's once you learn it, right? But who has time for that? Yeah, but there's, that's, that's really the thing is that there are core conventions right. that you, unless you have a very good reason for challenging them, yeah. shouldn't be challenged. It doesn't, yeah, in that case, for the navigation case, it doesn't make it the experience, it doesn't make the experience better. Mm -hmm. It's mostly a personal preference thing, which is, you know, in the, the sake of design, not the best way to approach it. This, um, is, this is really the thing. Whenever, whenever you're going to iterate on a design, this is something that you have to hold your designers accountable for, is specifically, what is your justification for the design change? Right. And it should be qualitative, 
quantitative or reason-based because you're not always going to have like a perfect design scenario where you can get qualitative and quantitative data but the overwhelming majority of the time that should be what the designer is providing yeah. you if there's certain cases where they can't do that then it should just be something that applies more to common sense or the greater goals of the business but there should always be a reason behind a design change so when we have design debt and then we take a step back and look at the full context of the page and try and reconnect all the elements, would you say that's reason-based? Because you probably don't have the qualitative and quantitative. Yep, I would say that that's reason-based. That's just okay. good design practice. We know, uh, and I would also argue that there are qualitative and quantitative ways that you can test that. Mm -hmm. uh, whether or not people consciously perceive the cohesion and quality of a design is that sort of varies by oh, person. True. But no matter what, they always subconsciously perceive yeah. it. Some people have more of an eye for design and others don't, but there's a direct perception of quality related to design. And there's actually a lot of really good studies out there that show that over 70% of people that visit a website cite the quality of the design as being the number one determining factor in their trust for the company that they're about to do business with. So I do think that there is reasoning, strong reasoning behind it at minimum. Mm -hmm. uh, but there could be ways, depending on your scenario, to tie qualitative and quantitative metrics to a refactoring, if you yeah. will, which is essentially that process of saying, we have a bunch of design debt, a disjointed design, we're going to spend a, uh, a project putting all of this stuff back together. Mm -hmm. um, so a quick metaphor for design debt. This is what it makes me think of. If you want to feel cooler, right? and you have a, a Honda Civic, okay? And you want to feel cooler because you want a cooler looking car. I thought, you, I thought you, Honda Civics were cool. If you, if you, hire, if, you, if, you <laughs> if you hold yourself to a very high standard, higher than a Honda Civic, do you actually drive a Honda Civic? I, I drive a very similar car to a Honda Civic. So you don't drive a Honda Civic. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> Just because it looks like a Honda Civic doesn't mean you do drive a Honda Civic. <laughs> what we've learned now is that Matt wishes he had a Honda Civic. Uh, no, so uh, you can, if you, if you want to make that car cooler, you can add stuff to it. You can just tack on, you know, a cool, uh, what's it called, a spoiler. You can, you can paint flames on the car. You can, uh, you can switch, you can super tint the windows. You can add lights on the bottom. But at the end of the day, it's a Honda Civic with a bunch of lights in the bottom and a cool spoiler in the back, right? Like you didn't, you, you added the pieces and you learned what makes a car cool to you, but the car itself is still not cool. So in reality, what you do is you buy, you know, a $200,000 car with a spoiler <laughs> and uh, a paint job built right in that's made to look like that in the tinted windows there already. And like, that's a single piece, but it, ha it has all the exact same things but it's built in a way that is made for mm -hmm. all those pieces to work together and it yeah. doesn't look like you just duct tape them on, right? Yeah, that reminds me of feature creep a lot, which is must be related to design debt in an iterative process to an extent in that like, as you're iterating, constantly the mindset is just to add and add and add and at a certain point you have so much design debt mm -hmm. because you've added all these things and it starts to feel disjointed and now part of the process of streamlining things might be to now remove because you have too much. Really common example of this that everybody has experienced on the web. The other day I was at a person's personal blog and they had their navigation and then above that they had a bar saying, oh my book just came out, you should buy it. Yeah. And then above that they had one of those sumo me things that pushes down and says, hey, sign up for my email list. <laughs> and then you scroll down and they've got a slide out that comes in, sign up for my email list. And then if you try to navigate off of the page, they have an exit modal that mm -hmm. pops up, sign up for my email list. 
all of these different things they may have read on like a best practices post or something like that. Oh, look at this thing. It, it increased conversion by 15% for me. And it's like, oh, okay, I'm going to add that. And if, if I had three different things that, you know, increase conversion by 12%, 15% and 32% respectively, then I'm going to get a conversion rate that's somewhere around 50%, right? right? Of course, that's not true. And then they don't consider, hey, what is the actual experience that people have when they land on my site where I've thrown all of these different things on there. And it's terrible if it's like a how-to article and it takes them like 10 seconds just to get to the article because they mm -hmm. have to exit all the modals and pop-ups that yeah. come up. Wouldn't it be ironic if their how-to article was like, how to increase conversion on your site by 25% <laughs> and you can't even get to it? Yeah. Just like, this ad is so large. <laughs> so uh, an analogy that I like to bring up with this is that we can sometimes run into Times Square syndrome, essentially, which is where we have a design and we say, okay, um, our goal this week is for, uh, we wanna drive people to this page. So we put a clear call to action on the page to do that. And then a couple weeks later, our goal changes and it's like, actually, we need to drive people to this page. So we put a different call to action and a different color on a different section of the page. And then a couple weeks later, the same thing re repeats. And then now we want email sign up. So we put an email sign up for, and then eventually we have right. like 10 different elements that are all competing with each yeah, other. Yeah, you get this a lot in bigger companies where every team's priorities are the highest priorities. Yeah. And then if you're the one kind of managing the points in which all of these, like if you're, if you're in a different part of the funnel and all these other teams in the lower part of the funnel want the same amount of attention, uh, suddenly it, it's hard to be like, what does the customer actually care about here? Because you've got you know, every single know, project manager or something like that coming up to you and being like, like where, why are my metrics not increasing? Yeah. Add more buttons. And you're yep. like, I can't do this for everybody. Yeah, and uh, as you, so I think that as you take on those requests and everything, the most important principle in all of that is that you make sure that generally for every page on your site, and you could even argue for every specific flow, as in like an entire user flow, should only optimize for one single action. Right. When somebody lands on your homepage, what is the single action that you want them to take? What's your most valuable action? When they land on that landing page, the most valuable action. And when they're going through that funnel, keep that action consistent throughout the entire funnel. So that's a good way to kind of combat the temptation to have a million different things and make your website homepage look like Times Square. Right. Because ultimately, if you think about your website, that's your real estate. So creating a bunch of different things that compete with each other doesn't ultimately serve you very well in the end, right? right. Uh, you're not competing with other companies, you're competing with yourself when you do that. But if you do want to run these experiments and to go back to that sort of like email conversion example and you wanna see what works better, an, an exit modal or an annoying slide in, uh, the important thing is to make sure that as you run those tests, you account for how many different elements you have on the page that are asking to do the same thing. Right. And most of the time, to kind of go back to, to Matt's example that he gave in our last episode, if you have a bunch of different elements that are trying to accomplish the same thing, your, whenever you add an additional element that's trying to do that same thing, it's just gonna take a piece of that pie. It's not going to add additional uh, pie to the pie itself, right? right? So when you add yeah, that God modal- God forbid you have too much pie, man. <laughs> when, 
when you add that modal in it and it, and it converts at 0.5%, what you're actually finding out is that 99.5% of your audience hates that modal. And that 0.5% would have probably already converted at the slide in or, or some other place. So you have to be really, really cognizant of the overarching experience right. that you have. Yeah, exactly. And then, uh, so an easy way, well, I guess not an easy way in a, a sense, but uh, one way that seems to help this a lot um, is having pretty strong leadership around. Yeah. Yeah. The So having somebody at the top who is willing to be flexible with the way you do things, but also is um, being held responsible for the consistency and uh, certain principles around what needs to ha be happening. You know, you can't have, you can have a, design leadership that's pretty loose. It's more like, you know, they, their leadership around like the process and the values that they instill in their designers, but they don't really have a strong vision around what the entire experience and product needs to look like, um, you know, from top to bottom of the funnel. And even as far as entire user experience. So um, unfortunately, this is the kind of thing that spans across multiple departments. This is, you know, you've got your, your digital assets, but then you've also got things like what happens when they talk to uh, marketing through the emails, what happens when they uh, talk to a sales rep, like all of these things need to be in line. And um, you actually do. So outside the scope of this, you do get design debt in a sense of, you know, if a sales rep says one thing and then your website says another, because those things aren't aligned with each other for some reason, and yeah. you haven't been able to, you know, have a, a place or a person to communicate all of these things um, and and keep you know everything in line. And with that design leadership, I think a incredibly important uh, quality to have is the ability to say no when these requests are coming in from all these different angles that are asking for competing interests on a single page. Right. You have to be able to say no. This is going to be bad for the experience. I don't care if it's going to increase your metrics. You need to find a better yeah. place to put that. That's that's really the biggest factor, and that's and, that can be a really hard thing to do. Yep, and and when you're when you're thinking about decreasing the design debt that you take on, like proactively attacking this problem, mm -hmm. you'll find that strong leadership with the ability to say no is the n the number one factor in that whole thing. Right. You know? And what's amazing is not only does that yield a higher quality product and more consistent experience, but it's actually way better of an environment for designers to work in. You know, if you're a designer that's worked for a leader that's a little bit of a yes man versus a leader that knows when to say no and when to say yes and they have a clear vision and a goal, the second one is so much more enjoyable of an experience because you're not doing fire drills, you're not running all over the place doing different things. And I think that the caveat to go with that is that the design leader that we're describing here is not a Johnny Ive. They're not uh, Steve Jobs or a John Maida. They're not some type of all-knowing genius designer because ultimately that designer doesn't exist. You know, They're not somebody that has a big ego and is prescriptive and says, I know what's best. You right. know? The best design leaders that I've worked for are very humble but they have a goal that is measurable and that they have a track record against within the specific company that they're in. You know, who cares about what they did in other companies? You got somebody that's a design leader that can come into your company, make a couple decisions and prove that they know what they're talking about. They earn that ability to say no, right. you know? Uh, and they, sh they demonstrate that they know what they're talking about. Right. And then when you can work under that person and they can execute on that vision and say, this is the right thing to do, this is not the right thing to do. 
you solve for the majority of your design debt proactively right. because you're already focusing on ensuring that you only run the experiments and that you only introduce the elements that are generally following the path and the goal that you're after. Right, exactly. I think like a big difference between this type of leader and somebody like a Steve Jobs is that uh, the leader that we're describing is somebody that isn't getting too obsessed over certain particular details of the experience, more so making sure that there are attributes of all of the pieces of the experience that are really consistent. Being, being anal about consistent colors and typography and you know the way something looks is really important, but not being anal about say where something is on a page or you know like not this video or you know like i don't like that one particular line because i don't know i feel bad today like um it's it's a little more like you know there are things that need to be consistent and things that i need to lay down the hammer about um but there are things also that like experimentation runs the show and that is especially placement and flow and um a lot of times uh copy too right um However, you know, copy is one of those things that can be disjointed at times. So, uh, describing, like, being, being, pointing out when things describe the same thing differently is something that is a good trait to have. Mm-hmm. Um, pointing out that something describes something in a way that you personally don't agree with is yeah. not the right way to go. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, you would hold them to the same standards that you would hold your designers, which is can you, as a design director, articulate and justify? why we are doing what we're doing, exactly. why this decision was made. And really, I think that the big thing is that the, the design director, they're not, they're not going to be prescriptive. They shouldn't be prescriptive. And they should, whenever they have a suggestion, be able to justify it in the same way. But at the same time, really what they're being afforded is the ability to set an overarching vision and attack that vision with their team giving them the ability to say no when they need to, but ultimately within their team, affording each individual designer a very high level of autonomy. Right. And I think that when you can foster a culture that's like that with no ego, no bullshit, no, we're going to do this because Apple did, which is total shit, or we're going to do this because this is what worked in my previous company, which is also total shit, but rather we're going to do this because we have a proven track record that that this vision is the right thing to do and that this is what we're focusing on. And we'll experiment against that, but we're still going to make sure that we uphold the integrity of our experience. Yeah. Um, We are kind of running out of time and I know that there's other ways that we can combat design debt. Um, There's a really, uh, a cool rule. I don't want to, I mean, it's only three words, so (laughs) it's called the Boy Scout rule. Uh, uh, Yeah, the Boy Scout rule. And Matt, uh, was the one who brought that up to me. You probably know more about it than I do. Yeah, so it's just something that we commonly apply to programming. Um, it, it, it's it's kind of this concept of keeping your code base clean, right. right? And so what it basically is, the Boy Scout rule, if any of you were in the Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, the idea is every single time you go to a campsite, you leave the campsite cleaner and in better order than you found it. And we apply that to coding whenever we go into a module or some, or some code base or some file, uh, whatever we're doing in there, we're going to, if we're introducing some new functionality, we're going to refactor the rest of it so that it's aware of that functionality and so that it's cleaner as a result. Yeah. And this concept, I believe, absolutely applies to pre- preventing design debt in that every single time you run an experiment and have something new to add to the page or have something that you're going to tweak about the page, 
try to uh, take stock of what the new context of the page is and refactor it around the new truth, the new thing that you've added to it. I think that um, one thing, design experiment, not so much um, technical debt, but definitely design debt. Um, this idea of running experiments, and we talked about um, doing something as like a vanity experiment, right? Like just doing it because you think it's the right thing and just calling it an experiment. But a lot of times what happens is you experiment and then you don't really have any next steps after it's done, and then whatever you did just stays there, right? So let's talk about adding a drop shadow on a button where there's no other drop shadows. That's great, it works better, awesome. And then you go off and do other things, you know? And like, you never, you never hold yourself to a standard of uh, following up on that, doing a non-experimental thing and changing things for the sake of um, kind of adjusting to the new context that you created with this successful variation yep. of an experiment. And part of this is also making sure that you're running high quality experiments. You know, if you're testing a module, uh, you can either test like the really quick implementation of it, like maybe you didn't want to invest like 10 hours of work into actually building this module the right way, or you can do it the right way right from the start when you're experimenting with it and do it and designing it right. And there are certainly different contexts in which one way, one solution is better than the other. Yeah. Uh, but when you finally implement whatever that thing is, you need to be implementing it the way that yeah. it should have it's been like implemented. At the, end, at the end of the day, you have to build the full version yes. of it. Um, the, I guess the argument with experimentation, of course, is if you uh, if it doesn't work, then you didn't spend yeah. all that time building. So, so an example to, to relate with that, uh, I remember we were testing within an onboarding flow that I was working on a couple years ago, uh, where we wanted to know, should we show a checklist? And rather than building a very dynamic checklist where the line moves as you complete items, I just mocked up an image in five minutes and put it up there and just took, took note in the data as to whether or not people completed the items that were in that image. And we discovered, yes, this does work. And so then we invested in building the real thing, investing the five, 10 hours in coding it up and making it uh, well implemented and crisp. But the important thing is that you followed up on it. Yes. As a final thing, before we run out of time, that I think you can do in paying down design debt or technical debt is taking a little bit of a different approach to the iterative process where you essentially add an additional step at the end of a large lean UX cycle or whatever you want to call it, uh, where you're budgeting for periodical refactoring. So you think of each of these little experiments that you run as a single iteration or a single version in the design. And after you've hit so many iterations or so many versions in the design, you do one large like new version, right? Uh, and that would be a refactoring. So you take all of those little experiments that you've run, maybe there's 10 of them, and you regroup and bring them all back together in the design and the refactoring process, which would be one major version. Mm -hmm. So like you've got version one, that's your first design. And then you do versions 1.1 through 1.7. And throughout that process, every single time, 1.2, 1.3, 1.4, you're breaking up that design a little bit, the consistency and the experience, but you're learning about what works best. And then at the end of it, 1.9, you take all of those learnings and you say, these, these are the things that we know about this design. This is the general placement. These are some things that were adversely affected, so we should remove them or modify them to be more consistent. Mm -hmm. And you bring it all together in 2.0, your second major version. Yep. Yep. This reminds me of, uh, it's kind of like 
by the time you hit 2.0. Also, taking stock of what the larger picture for all your learnings are. And so I'm imagining a scenario where you have an e-commerce site and you test a bunch of stuff. You test and you discover and you learn that, hey, images of the outdoors connect really well with our audience. Oh, they really seem to like these hiking boots. And they also tend to buy this water bottle with these hiking boots. Oh, snap. Everyone that's coming to our e-commerce clothing site loves hiking. And you kind of like realize that after mm -hmm. all those learnings have accumulated and now you kind of have like a new direction to kind of form everything around yep. in that major version. It turns out actually none of them like hiking and they all live in the middle of the city <laughs> and that's just what's in style now, right? <laughs> and like so, some so also city. talk to customers. <laughs> all right, we are definitely out of time. Uh, we have an email address that you should email. It is hello at uxandgrowth.com. Uh, we are on uh, SoundCloud and iTunes. If you are feeling great about this episode or just feeling charitable. Um, <laughs> we, are, are we about to ask for donations? Uh, no, no, not a real donation, just an iTunes review, which is like way less of a donation. If you want to send us money directly, like absolutely go for it. <laughs> <laughs> but we will settle for a boring, normal old iTunes <laughs> review. Uh, as many stars as you feel is appropriate. Yeah, you're basically saving money by leaving a review. Yes. By not having to donate. Yeah, right. That's what this has come to. Yeah, yeah we're really desperate, guys. <laughs> uh, you, you wanted us just to say it. Yeah, yeah. It's like, we're all thinking it. <laughs> all right. SoundCloud, iTunes, email address, hello at uxandgrowth.com. Uh, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you.